I want to see this morning um, the difference between people here in our church. How many of you are feeling-based decision makers? Like, you make decisions based on, man, I just got a gut feeling about this one. I, any, and some of you aren't raising your hand very high. You're like, man, I just, it's, it's emotionally, emotionally driven. That's how you make decisions. The rest of you then, are you logic thinkers? The rest of you are logic? Like, does it work into our budget? It has to meet the budget. It has to meet our timeline. It has to fit into our schedule. It has to do, and you don't, it's not just right now. You put this out like years in advance. You're, you're looking at it for years to come. How does it fit? Therefore, I'm going to make the decision based on this, depending on how, that's you, right? Well, it's you until you step into a situation like this. I know some of you have been here. You have a rock solid foundational argument for your decision. You're like, I, I know it makes sense. It's absolutely gonna, no one in their right mind could disagree with you or go against the decision you're about to make because you've thought about it. You've put a lot of thought and energy. It's logical. It fits your budget, your timeline, your life, your schedule, everything until you step into a discussion with your spouse, most likely, right? Or your kids. Um, and they come up with a feelings-based decision because they ran into one of these, right? Watch, watch this. <laughs> Until one of these shows up and you're like, all right, your whole logic is out the window because, oh, because you need one of these. How many of you 15 years later still have a dog that because it was a feelings-based decision by somebody in your family? You know, you're right. Yeah, Hunter, do you, you guys have a dog right now? Yeah, you need another one? Yeah, yeah, are you there? Uh-huh, is that, see? It happens, sorry guys. If it, yeah. um, a few years ago, there was a guy by the name of Antonio um, Damasio. His, he was a neuroscientist, and he started to study the brain, but he had a specialty with this. He just studied a portion of the brain of people that, the brain portion that was damaged had to do with emotions, so there were these people that they had a damaged part of their brain, and the part of the brain that was damaged was what drove their emotions, their feelings. And he started to study these people, and he found out that they were like everyone else. Most of the time, everything else looked normal. And in fact, they could come up with logical understandings of life and what to do and how to do it. Here was the big difference between them and everybody else, and it was unique just to these people, and they were all the same in this. They had trouble making decisions. They, they couldn't make decisions, even basic decisions in life. They could come up with all the logical terms, everything else that goes around with making a decision. But when it came down to actually making a decision, the people that had a damaged part of their brain that, that dealt with their emotions and their feelings, they couldn't do it. Even the basic stuff like what to eat, the difference between a ham sandwich and a turkey sandwich, they couldn't decide between those because their emotions weren't involved. Now, it unpacks something very basic for us and an understanding of how God created us. I believe he designed us and he created us with emotions, with feelings, and we need that in our lives. If that goes away and we don't base anything off of feelings or emotions, we're missing out on a huge part of how God created us and what he did in us. Now, it doesn't say that's the only part that helps us make decisions. We still need that logical side. But I'm going to go here. If this is how God created us and what he did to us, have you ever asked the question, then what does Christianity feel like? And can you answer that? Is there a feeling? 
Is there a feeling? Do we have feelings based on Christianity and what Christ teaches us? And is it full of just love and joy and peace and serenity? And that should be it. That's, that's all it is. Um, letting your feelings drive you in that. Some of you have been to worship um, settings Sometimes in here, maybe you see somebody that's really getting into the worship and their hands are raised, maybe they're dancing, maybe you know they're so into it and you're thinking, I'm not going to go that far. But then there's other people, sometimes it's me, you know, my hand's in my pocket, I'm thinking about something else and you're like, but I don't want to be like that either, you know, so where does this fit? Where, where are the emotions with us in this? And I believe Jesus gets here. So Matthew chapter 5 is where we're at today. Um, we're studying we're, um, the Beatitudes. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. If you want one with pages and words on it, there's, there's some of those on either side of the room. But otherwise, get your Bible app open. I want you to see these Beatitudes. So far, Jesus has talked about what we do, who we are. That's what we've talked about so far in this study. And as we unpack it, we're not going one by one. We're kind of categorizing them in different categories. So today we're talking about feelings. The Beatitudes that deal with how we feel and how God created us in this. Maybe how we should feel as Christians as we move forward. So here's our objective. The first one is this. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, some of you are like, no, I want positive sermons. Can you just give it us positive stuff? How can we have to always be negative with everything? And you jump towards that. This is Jesus talking about this. Blessed are those who mourn. And he tackles this problem in a typically, for him, profound way. Simple, but yet brutally honest. And Jesus doesn't offer any philosophical theory of why people suffer. Why do we have to go through hard times? Why do we have to suffer? Why does God allow this type of suffering? He doesn't jump into that with us. He just basically says, you're going to. And blessed are you when you do. You're going to go through a tough time. You're going to have times of suffering. You're going to have times where you walk through a period of mourning. He simply says, people do. There's a time for that. It's a stark, realistic, brutally honest, no simplistic solutions to it, no um, naive slogans. Jesus just says, you're going to have times of mourning. Now, this is where a good pastor steps in and says, all right, let's transition this to spiritual. All right, there's a spiritual side of this, and we're getting there. But I want you to hear this specifically. Jesus isn't sidestepping the real physical part of our lives the emotional side of this, when we go through a time of mourning, I believe he has compassion and his heart is there with you. And he hates it when you go through a time of suffering and mourning. Some of you have been through pretty tough stuff. And I believe that it's there. Some of you have gone through some tough times. You've lost people that are close to you. Um, for some, maybe, maybe it's just some friends. You, you haven't gone there yet. But for others, maybe you've lost your parents. Maybe you've lost... Um, a spouse, or a child, and you've gone through some pretty heavy-duty mourning in your lifetime. And I don't think that's to be overlooked. Ecclesiastes talks about this. There is a time for that. He says there's a time for weeping and there's a time for mourning. But he also gives us the hope in the New Testament. Philippians, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, yes, but remember, always remember to live as Christ, to die as gain. And there's this bigger picture of this that we can go through this time of mourning and he's giving us some hope in this. But I don't believe this part here in the um, Beatitudes is specifically what Jesus is talking about. 
I think he takes us to a different level and he transitions us from this physical feeling that we have of missing somebody and mourning that to a whole new level of mourning. Something different um, that maybe we don't face in our world. He goes spiritual with it. And I think the connection needs to be made in the book of Matthew. When Matthew references this concept, it's in chapter 9, verse 36, and it's Jesus, when he looks at the crowds, it says, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And then he makes this comment. Um, It's because they're harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he's mourning for them. So think about the last couple weeks. If you were to go back the last few weeks, and big picture, what you remember about the news over the last few weeks, whether it's an article you read or a news report you saw, whether it's online or on the news on TV, what are some things that stick out to you? Some events that have happened in our world over the last few weeks. We might go to this Jeffrey Epstein's situation. And it's not just that his life ended before his trial began. My heart breaks for all of the victims that were sexually assaulted by him throughout the years. And then it goes to the families and the concept that, no, he didn't get a trial here on earth. And man, I wanted part of that. I want, yes, I want to see justice be done, but I know God's a bigger God. And so, you know, it's there, but my heart breaks for that whole situation. What about the mass shootings that have gone on in our society over the last few weeks? I know there's times you think, I can't do anything about it, but does your heart break for it? Or you just move on with your day? You just hear the news and move on? Or does something happen in you? Can you stand there like with Jesus and say, look at this world. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And the word used in this verse, um, compassion, He had compassion on them. That word compassion is directly correlated to the word mourning. There's a connection between compassion and mourning in this concept. And it's an extremely strong version of the word mourning. there's, There's something there. His compassion for them is breaking his heart. He is mourning for the world that he is looking at, saying something is wrong here. And it's not just for others. I believe it becomes personal. And King David did this for us. I can see in King David when he was writing, when he was caught in his sin and what he did, he went to a time of mourning for his own sin. And in Psalm 51, he writes about this. This is, I want to read it to you. This is part of what David writes about when he was caught in his sin and what it did to his heart, his own sin. He writes, God have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. His heart is breaking. He is, he is mourning his own sin and his separation from God. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned. I think this is a mourning that Christ is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn who have an understanding that what they have done has separated them from God and it's breaking your heart. And you've got to get back to a point where you have that connection back with God. Are you mourning your own sin? Now, it might be others as well that you're mourning in with us. Paul does a good job of this. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he wrote them actually two letters. And this is unique about the two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. The first one, he confronted a lot of their sin. 
And he, he wrote pretty harsh things to this church saying, you guys have to stop doing this. You have to stop doing this. These are some things you need to start doing. And he was pretty hard on them. And it hurt their feelings. They were hurt because Paul was confronting them in their sin. However, in this second letter to them, he addresses that same issue. And this is what's cool about this. I think it's what's unique with this idea. In chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 9, this is the NIV version. It says this, Now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. I don't know if you understand what he's saying here. He's saying, I know I hurt your feelings when I confronted your sin. I'm not sorry about that. I'm not sorry that I hurt your feelings. I'm not sorry that you felt bad when I confronted you. And there's a reason. It's because it makes you better. I did it for a reason. Let's read on. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So your feelings were hurt for a little bit. I don't care because it helped you in your relationship with Christ. You walk through a time of sorrow. You walk through a time of mourning because of your sin, and now you're better for it. And that sin, that repentance, then is a good thing for us, and it leads us to the next point. Our next objective, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If it leads you to this, this is a great thing. If your mourning leads you to hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this is where we need to be. And I can look at our English language and see that I believe that these are two words, in my opinion, these are two words that we use too lightly when you understand it the way Jesus is teaching us here. How many of you describe your feelings like this so often? Oh, I'm starving. And it's been a few hours since you had something to eat. Right? Are you really starving? I'm so hungry. Man, I can't wait to eat. Well, you, you just had a snack an hour ago, but are you really hungry? The way Jesus describes this, man, this is a really deep, rich word, hunger and thirst. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means you desire God above anything else. Nothing else will stand in your way between you and God. In fact, you can't do without it. Every day, it's a craving, a longing, a compassion, a strong desire that grips your soul it says, I can't live without that relationship with God. I've got to have, that's what he's talking about, a hunger and thirst for that, that, that it drives you, it satisfies you when those desires are met, but it torments you and it tortures you when you don't have it. And it's the type of feeling too, when you eat, when you finally eat after you've been hungry, oh, it tastes so good, right? It's the best that you've ever had. So I want to explain it this way. I think this may be the best way to give you this example. Um, so this last summer, a um, month ago, a couple, several weeks ago, almost two months now, uh, my family and I, we went on vacation. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to go, that we have the resources, we can get out of town, we got out of state. I know some of you maybe didn't get to do that this summer. Um, I'm grateful that we did. And um, our youngest daughter, Ruby, she's been infatuated with the movie um, National Treasure and National Treasure 2 over the last couple years. And if you know these movies, movies, National Treasure 2, some of it's filmed in South Dakota at um, 
um, Mount Rushmore. And so was, this has been on her bucket list. I know she's 12. She has a bucket list, right? She, she wanted to go to Mount Rushmore to see this place where they filmed this movie and the lake that's um, around there and what we could do. And so this, we planned our vacation around this, and we went to South Dakota, the Black Hills, um, a few weeks ago. And we were there very long, a few days. But during those days, one of the days, of course, we were going to Mount Rushmore. So we went, we had it all planned out. And just so all of you know, that some of you kids, you know, that, that are in here know that all families, most families are like this. The day that we went, this is how we did it. And I believe most of you do this when you're on vacation. We got up that morning, we had our day planned out and we packed a sack lunch, right? How many of you are like, how can we have to take lunches with us? Because that's what you do when you're on vacation to save a few bucks. So we packed a lunch that day and we had a few sandwiches, some chips, I think some apples, things like that in our lunch. So we go to Mount Rushmore that morning and we do all the trails. I mean, we walk as far as they'll let us walk on these trails and we are, we're worn out by the time we get to lunch and we're starving. So we're ready for lunch. We sit down and eat our lunch, but then after lunch, and it was just a little lunch that we packed, we went back into the closest town and we hung out there most of the afternoon. I mean, we did all kinds of stuff there. We did some shopping. We played some games, you know, in that town. We had a great time. And then we went down this windy road. It's called Needles. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been there, the road describes the road. Um, it's short and narrow, some, some caves that only one car can fit through at a time. And we pull over several times, and we climb on the rocks, and we're going down the pass. But our goal is to get to a little town called Custer. Because we had heard of somebody in this church that recommended you've got to go to this hamburger joint in this town called Custer. It's the best hamburgers. We're like, all right, we put that on our list of things to do, and we're going there. We can't wait for dinner. But by the time we get through this little windy road, it took longer than we expected. We finally pull up in this town, and here's a picture of it. Here's the, we go up to this place. It's actually called the Black Hills Burger and Bun Company. We go up, ready to eat, and I say, yeah, it'll be an hour and a half. Wait. Like, no, we're hungry, right? We're starving. We had a little sack lunch hours ago, and we've done so much since then. So we start walking up and down the street. You know, we're doing a little shopping, and Ruby and I are getting hangry at this point. <laughs> it's not just her. I think we're all at this point. And we go back, and we're sitting right outside the window looking at the girl who's, you know, seating people. Like, it's our turn. Can I tip these people to leave early so we can get a table? And we finally get in there, and we finally sit down at our table, and guess what? They have the best water you have ever tasted there. <laughs> You know the feeling, right? We couldn't wait for, um, to order even. We ordered an appetizer before we even ordered our hamburgers. And we got these cheese curds. They're, they're amazing there. They're the best you've ever had. And the hamburgers we got, I got this hamburger and they put the sauce on it. It's called um, hot granny sauce. Um, I don't know who came up with the name. The hot granny sauce. Before I was done with the hamburger, I ordered a jar of it. And I said, I got to have a whole jar of it. I brought it home. Here's the funny part. It's not as good at home as it was then. <laughs> There's something about that feeling that when you're hungry, whatever you eat, it's the best you've ever had. And it feels so good. So let me go here with this. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness isn't satisfied with coming just on Sunday mornings. You got to get plugged in. You got to read this book throughout the week. 
You can't just come on Sunday mornings and get enough of this. If you're truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you got to go deeper on your own throughout the week. I'd recommend Rooted. I'd recommend signing up for a small group, getting plugged in with a group of people that, you, that holds you accountable and help you study this as you walk along. I believe that the person that truly hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they don't just read this book when they're in the mood or it fits their schedule. You make time for it. You seek out that time for it because you've got to have it to sustain your spiritual life. I believe the person who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you get involved in the kingdom, not just when it's convenient for you, but because you believe that this message, this gospel message that we have needs to be shared with everyone. And you're willing to jump in and work and be a part of a place like this church that helps others come to know him better. And you say, I want to serve. I want to be in. I want to do something more. You get involved in the kingdom. I'm going to put it like this. I'm going to put a list um, on the screen for you. If you truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, several things can be assumed. I think the first thing is this. All of our heart and mind will be focused on our hunger and thirst. I'm telling you, when we were walking up and down that street of that little town called Custer waiting for our table to come open, all we could think about was those hamburgers. We hadn't even been there. We didn't even know what they tasted like, but we knew they were going to be good. Our focus was there. If we truly hunger and thirst, very little will get in our way or distract us, sidetrack us from our quest to be a part of what is going on. If we're truly there, we will not be satisfied until we are filled. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be satisfied with a little nugget here and there. I'm going to I'm going to eat this until it fills me up. And we'll want it so badly it will actually hurt. I think that's the biggest um, difference for me on this. I don't know that I know true hunger and the pain of really being hungry physically, but I know what it feels like to be hungry spiritually. And we've got to be there. We've, it's got to hurt us to drive us to that. And I know this, number five, yesterday satisfaction will not satisfy you today. But you know what? We, we ate those amazing hamburgers at that restaurant. And guess what we did the next day? We ate again. <laughs> we, had, we had to eat again. We've eaten several times since then. That didn't satisfy us the following day and the following day and the following day. And I believe it's true spiritually. You've got to keep going back. You've got to keep digging in. Paul writes about it with this concept, this idea of I press on towards the goal. I keep going towards the goal. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. I keep pressing on for the reward that comes with it. So let's look at these rewards. There's, there's rewards that come with these. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those of you that have gone through a time of suffering and sorrow and mourning, you know what you want out of the friends that are around you. You know what you don't want. Number one, you don't want answers. You don't want somebody to come along and just tell you how to get over it or how to move on. You're not seeking after answers. What you want is a friend, someone just to come alongside you and cry with you and share your sorrow. And that's comfort for you. Our sin, we don't like it when someone pokes at our sin or tells us when we're sinful. We don't like to be confronted. Our sin makes us uncomfortable. But what makes us comfortable is when Jesus comes along and says, you're forgiven. Let's go. I'm going to walk with you through this. He simply says, yeah, you're going to suffer and God's going to provide you comfort. And I think the big difference in this is 
God never promises that he'll take away your sorrow. He never promises that he's going to take away your time of mourning. Those of you that have lost somebody in this world, you're going to miss them the rest of your life. Your heart is going to break the rest of your life. And I don't think God has ever made the promise that he'll take that feeling away. But what he has promised is that he'll walk with you. He'll comfort you through this life as you walk along in this life. He said the world is going to rejoice. There's going to be weeping and lamenting and the world may rejoice. But I can turn your sorrow into joy. He may not take it away, but he can turn your sorrow into joy. Now the wages of sin is death, true. But his gift is eternal life through him. He will take what we see as ashes and turn them into something beautiful. Isaiah talks about this. This is something I have to read as a part of this. Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim fear, sorry, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. What people would do during times of mourning is they would put ashes on their forehead to show others that they were going through that period of sorrow. And he says, I'm going to take those ashes away and I'm going to give you a crown. I'm going to give you a beautiful headdress. Beauty from ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. He can give us that. He can comfort us in it. And here's the other reward. There's a reward for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled. Now that terminology, when he uses the word filled, it's, it's also, I think, underused in our own minds. It gives the impression, it's a graphic word that gives the impression of a farmer who goes to feed his cattle or his animals. And he's feeding them not just for them to survive, to make it through the next day. He's feeding them to fatten them up. So it gives them extra, it gives them more to make them fatter so that when they go to slaughter, they're bigger, they're better, they're what he's needing out of that. It's a graphic word to say you're not just going to get enough to, to get by. When God fills you up, he gives you more than you understand, more than you know. He fills you up beyond what you can probably handle in blessings. He is a great God like that and does so much more. Our hunger and our thirst will be filled more than we can understand. It's the type of thing that when you get filled this way and then you come in here to worship, it means something different. It changes you. Your worship, there's more meaning to it. There's something extra that happens with you and you're like, I don't know why, but there's something special. It's because you're being filled up during the week, and when you come in here, it's, it's out of the overflow. When you are being filled up because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, when I say things and you leave, you're saying, wow, that was amazing. Like, I don't know if it really was all that amazing, but to you it was. 
because God is doing something in your heart that when this happens, when I say certain words or phrases, man, it's, it's filling you up beyond what you can understand and know and do. When you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness and God fills you, it happens in a way that is hard to comprehend. So let me give you this challenge. Here's my challenge for you this week. My challenge is this. I'm going to ask you to fast this week. I don't think I've ever done this as a, at a church at large, to ask you to fast. Um, I have for smaller groups. We've done it for different groups that we have fasted for a certain time. But this week, I'm going to ask you to fast. Okay, Here's your challenge for the week. And some of you are thinking, like, all week? Where are you going with this, dude? What's going on? No, not all week. Here's where, I, here's where I'm going to land. I want you to fast until you get hungry. That's it. Just fast until you feel feelings of hunger. For some of you, that might be one meal. All you have to do is miss one meal, and you're going to feel this. For some of you, it might be a day. It might be a couple days. For some of you, it might be a snack. I mean, you just miss your morning snack and it's lunchtime and you're like, I'm, I'm hungry. You know, I know this feeling, but I want you to get to the point where you physically feel hunger. And then I want you to translate that into something spiritual. Then I want you to take that physical feeling of hunger and translate it to a spiritual connection between you and God. And I want you to mourn your sin. I want you to go into a time of mourning. And again, this doesn't have to happen for days. It might be a few minutes of prayer that you pray to God and you're more like turn to a prayer that David um, had and say, God, I'm so sorry. Bring me your mercy. Have mercy on me. Let your heart break because your stomach feels hunger pains. May your heart also feel the spiritual pain of being separated from God because of your sin and mourn that. And then hunger and thirst, not for food, hunger and thirst for righteousness and go to him for that. May your heart be changed because your stomach is hungry. May that transition you to something specific in your heart that hungers and thirsts for God. Because I believe that's what he's talking about. And then when you are satisfied, when you go and eat, it's gonna taste good, I believe it. But when you are satisfied that way spiritually, it's going to be good as well. And God's going to change you, and it's going to be an amazing thing. Now, here's the deal. Don't just keep it for yourself. When you go to that place and you mourn your own sin, mourn for someone else as well. Who else needs to know this gospel message? Who else needs to hear this? Who else do you care about where it's going to break your heart if they don't find out about it? Mourn for them hunger and thirst for them, do life with them, and then invite them to be a part of what we understand. So I'm going to give this out to you as well today. Um, if it is you, if you haven't made that decision to be with him and to be a part of that, maybe today is the day for you. Um, this thing behind us here, behind this curtain, is our baptistry. And if you've never taken that step for baptism, maybe today's your day. It's, it's warm, it's ready, we're here for you. If you're thinking, I, I don't have what I need. For, we've got shorts and shirts and towels. We can make it work for you today if that's you. But maybe you've already done that, but you've got some friends that haven't. Who are you praying about that needs to be here to hear this message of forgiveness and blessings that they can get? I want to encourage you to mourn for them and to invite them someday.
If you would, I'm going to ask you to stand now. We're going to stand and we're going to sing to prepare our hearts for a time to remember what Jesus did for us. Let's stand together and sing.